Work has been disrupted before, but not like this. The pandemic has put us on the fast track. This time, it's not just the things we do or how we do them that's changing. The very paradigm of career progression is being threatened, and technology is at the heart of it. At least that's what our guest this episode says. Futurist and entrepreneur Sinead Bovell wants Canada to be ready. She says that, yes, technology is changing. It always is, always has. We need to be intentional about how we bring tech with us into the future, and we need the skills to work with it. She says we need to never stop learning, and that schools need to teach us how to learn. She talks to us about how she thinks technology will actually make us more human, the importance of having diverse faces coding the future, and how governments, schools, and individuals can help shape our future. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. Our guest this episode is a futurist, entrepreneur, writer, and speaker. Upon graduating with her MBA from the University of Toronto, Sinead Bovell founded WAY, which stands for Weekly Advice for Young Entrepreneurs. WAY is an organization that prepares youth and businesses for a future with advanced technologies. To date, Sinead has provided guidance to over 10,000 young entrepreneurs on the future of technology and has been invited to share her vision at world-renowned institutions, including the United Nations, Cornell University, and Bloomberg. Her articles have been published in Vogue and the Globe and Mail, and in March of this year, she was recognized by Wired Magazine for her work bringing new faces to the table in tech. Sinead's expertise is in the intersection of business, technology, and the future. Far from a passive observer, Sinead's work is an effort to shape that future so that people are prepared, can thrive, and that tomorrow is more inclusive than today. Sinead, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Sinead, you said that the traditional career path is dying or is already dead. We've heard that the traditional career has been dying for many years. What makes this time different? This time, the idea that we learn, we work, and we retire, that entire model is being disrupted. In previous times, you center in on the work element of it and what we do changes. But now it's the entire model because it's the first time in history where humans won't necessarily be the smartest entity in the room for decisions, recommendations, analysis, an algorithm will usually be better equipped to handle that than the human brain. This challenges that post-industrial revolution model. And then there's machine intelligence. It keeps getting smarter. Humans will keep having to upgrade our skills to stay employable in this new workforce ecosystem. This is very different than anything that's disrupted the workforce in the last 50 years. What impact do you think the pandemic has had on bringing this future that you've been talking and writing about closer to us? The pandemic has accelerated the future of work. Changes that we would have forecasted to happen in 5, 10, sometimes even 15 years happened in a matter of days, in a matter of hours for some organizations in some countries. And of course, working from home is a huge part of that, but there's a bigger impact or something bigger that's happening. When you look at our entire systems of belief around how people get educated, where they get educated, how we work, where we work, all of that has started to shift or has been challenged. And in many cases, we've seen that our old ways may have been suboptimal. This impacts world order. For example, if you don't need to go into work, it's not just your 
future relationship with your employer that changes where it's going to be a little bit more flexible. Maybe we only have to go into work on Fridays. How and where your employer recruits from is no longer tied down by geography. The recruiting market has now truly expanded globally because we've proven that it's not necessarily needed for us to go into these offices. And then the same thing happens for school. If your children don't necessarily need to go in five days a week, if we realize that some elements of online learning work, does that change where you would choose to live? Because school zone isn't necessarily a factor in the decision or telehealth, where you can access great healthcare, where you can access university care. There's an entire world order shift that's happening that this pandemic has accelerated. You've talked about how these changes are changing the way that we should be talking to kids about their future. What are the questions that we should be starting to ask kids so that they can think about this future? For children, one thing that I usually like to start with is expanding the question from what do you want to do to who do you want to be? What problems do you like to solve? Because if there's one thing we know for sure with technology, it's going to disrupt every single job that exists today. And in fact, 800 million of those jobs will be automated by 2030. Or if you're looking just at Ontario, for example, 45% of jobs in Ontario are at high risk of automation. Strapping your children into an occupational identity at an early age can build some sort of an identity crisis because that job will probably be augmented, if not fully automated. What we want to expand to do is what do you like to solve? What topics interest you? What are things in the world that you would like to work on, whether it's combating climate change or you're interested in technology and a 3D printer? Things that are a bit more broad as opposed to zoning in on something very specific that will probably look very different going forward. And understanding that the jobs and the markets and the opportunities are going to be different, there does seem to be a centrality in your vision of the future of technology. Often when people think about technology, it becomes very much a people should code or people should understand how AI is going to happen. What do you think young people need to understand about technology? Human skills are still very important, if not more important going forward. Human skills don't depreciate. They appreciate with time. Tech skills depreciate because machines, if there's anything that they're going to be good at, it's the things with numbers and code. That's what they're made of. Of course, STEM is incredibly important, especially for jobs in the next 10 years, building these machines, cybersecurity, all of that. But it's not the be-all, end-all to completely future-proofing your career. Human skills are incredibly important. Creative intelligence. An organization needs to know where should we apply artificial intelligence in the first place. What insights do we want to extract? A human is going to be a better position to answer those theoretical questions than a machine. Or critical thinking, for example. There's one thing that young people should know is that human skills are incredibly incredibly important as well. And if there was one skill that I could leave you with, it would be adaptability. In a world where one day you might report to a robot, the next day you might share a project with one, being able to thrive in that type of adversity, organizations are continually restructuring to stay on pace with the changes in technology. An employee or worker that's able to still take initiative and thrive in that atmosphere is going to be the one that wins, ultimately. What about for employers? The future you're talking about is not that far away. It's within people's career spans. 
What do you think employers should be doing to understand how they can recruit for or better leverage these kinds of skills in their workforce today so that it was a workforce that will be ready for that future? With employers, the first thing that they tend to think about is, do we have tech-savvy people? Do we have people that can code? Do we have artificial intelligence? But I always say back up a little bit and first understand what needs does your organization have? Are there pain points in your operational model that artificial intelligence could help solve? Are there things that you could optimize, be a little bit more targeted? And then from a customer standpoint or a value-add standpoint, where could you use AI to help bring more value for your customer? Maybe that's something that you learned through this pandemic, an area that you weren't present or your digital channel wasn't strong, or you didn't properly track consumer insights. Those are all things that you'd want to identify first before diving into AI hiring strategy. And then you would want to partner with an AI vendor to understand what artificial intelligence algorithms would be best equipped to handle this. And then you want to make sure that you work closely with your HR department to build strategically. HR is predominantly now an operational role. And I think it's 59% of HR jobs right now are operational, as according to a study by Brookings Institute. And you want HR to have the capacity to think strategically to build a stronger pipeline, a pipeline with those tech skills that can allow you to implement those plans to eliminate pain points in your model or to add value for your customer. That's when you would start to think about the hiring short-term and long-term. How do we build this capacity to reposition our organization for this digital future and a future that's going to cause us to continually change and remodel. You really want to have an idea of where your organization's going. Of course, there are many challenges that are out of your control as an employer right now. But for some companies, they weren't adapting fast enough to this digital revolution. And the pandemic would have accelerated those losses. Use this time to see where we weren't keeping up and how we could do better going forward. Employers are already telling our education and skills researchers that they are having a hard time finding the skills that they need in new employees and in the up and coming generation of youth. You work with youth a lot and you see the kinds of skills that they have. Do you think it's a gap in the skills that the youth have? Or is it really a gap on the employer side in terms of thinking about what skills people actually need to do their jobs and how their jobs may need to change? I think it would be both. CEOs are rightfully concerned about skills of the future. And I think in Canada, it's about 88% of CEOs are really worried about the skills gap. And it is significant. It involves a collaboration between government and the policies they set in education institutions and businesses. But in terms of the actual skills gap that exists, in terms of tech skills, we would see that there's a gap. But the human skills, I think organizations haven't properly identified what they actually need going forward. And that kind of ties into the previous question. How are you pivoting for the digital future? What are you trying to do? What does that pipeline look like? And then who would be best to fill it? CEOs are quick to jump to say, we don't have a strong tech recruitment plan or a tech pipeline, but do you know where you're going with technology first, I would ask, before you try to figure out the skills gap? And then, of course, there is a lot that organizations can do. So if you look at AT&T, for example, they're a great example of a company that's provided free upskilling for employees. 
the employer provides it for free, and then it's up to employees to take the courses on their own time. And depending on where you are in the world, Europe, for example, is a bit more let's help our employees stay relevant. The United States, not as much. It's more onus on the employee. AT&T is a good example Canadian companies can look at for a model of investing in that talent yourself. Companies can also take a step. And knowing that the majority of jobs in 2030 haven't been invented yet, it's also on the leaders, the CEOs to identify where are you going before you start to worry about the gap. If you don't know where you're going, it's irrelevant of who can help you get there. One of the questions in your future is if people need to be learning more regularly, if this idea that you learn and then that phase of your life is over and then you go into work and you do that phase of work until you get to the retirement stage and you're done. You talk about how we need to be learning constantly. An obvious question is what can traditional education institutions like universities, colleges do to remain relevant in a future where regular or constant reskilling is the baseline expectation for employees? It definitely challenges this current pre-adult intensive education model that we have. For one, it's difficult planning for a workforce that you don't know what's going to happen. You know, 65% of children in primary school today will work in jobs that do not exist at all. That makes things really challenging. But we do know, like you had mentioned, that the pace of change is going to require us to continually upskill and reskill and have to learn. Universities actually have a great ecosystem for fostering that type of skill. Instead of forcing children to remember facts, give us frameworks for how to think. Make us masters of problem solving, critical thinking, creative intelligence. How do we ideate from scratch? And then interdisciplinary education. If we're working on problems like going to space and climate change, you're going to need people that can think cross-functionally. Schools have a great opportunity to cater to those needs. And it's also about changing the model a little bit. If you know that we're going to have to learn quite regularly, stepping out of the workforce sometimes to upskill and upgrade our skill sets, offering programs that can fit and meet that need is critical. That maybe looks like shorter term degrees or credits, things that people can go do quickly and then step back into the workforce. That idea of going to school for four, eight, ten years in some very specific lanes that will be necessary, but 100%, even if you're becoming a doctor or a pharmacist, AI is going to force you to change and to rescale. So you're going to have to step out and learn things again. But if universities can adapt and fit that need, there's incredible opportunity for them. But if they can't, then it's going to be challenging. Employers will need to also figure out how to have that step back. You can't take that time. You're not going to be able to maintain those skills. For employers, it's also about viewing work differently. We think of work as a place to work, but not a place to learn. But we learn at work. So can we extract from that when we finish a project, stepping back and thinking, okay, what did I learn here? What was the problem and how did I solve it? What was the process I took to get there? Organizations can start extracting that as opposed to just looking at the output, the product or service. Think about the process. That in itself is a form of learning and something that they can codify and redistribute to employees. And then investing in the skills that they may specifically need that they don't see, they're going to have to step up. But it is a combination, a collaboration of educational institutions, government, and organizations kind of filling that skills pipeline. Your organization has a inclusion mandate. 
We've seen the pandemic outline the stark contrast and divide that technology can create. Some jobs can't be done remotely. Some communities don't have sufficient broadband to do all the remote video conferencing that we have to do now. And some families don't have enough devices for everybody to work, learn, and play at the same time. Do you think the future that you see further reinforces this access gap? The pandemic has shown that the current digital infrastructure for Canadians is not sustainable. And it's going to hold Canada back in our ability to compete successfully in a changing world of work. Pandemic itself is an absolutely devastating circumstance. But I think policymakers need to be taking rigorous notes as to what we can improve. We can see clearly what isn't working and we can make that change. So, for example, the Internet. People don't have adequate access to the Internet. They won't be able to contribute to the economy. Bottom line. So not only is it a necessity for our well-being, but we can't participate in the economy. Some people have suggested the Internet be deemed a national good. And I would 100% support that. Because investing in a strong digital infrastructure, and that also goes for devices, is an investment in Canada's future. If you think about healthcare, for example, if you live in a rural area, you may not have access to a specialist that you need. But now telehealth, we're seeing, or e-learning, all of these different tools and options rely on technology. By investing in it as a country, you're positioning Canadians for success. The pandemic has highlighted the digital divide, the economic divide. We have an opportunity now to fix it. It's really on policymakers to step up. It's also on the tech giants of your region or of your country to step in. If you can provide devices and things to students, to children, to families, that's an investment in your future too. That's more people that are going to be using your technology. It's in everybody's best interest to make our future more inclusive. The technology sector itself is often criticized for its lack of diversity. One of the books that our president, Susan Black, gave me when she started at the conference board was Brotopia by Emily Chang, which talks about the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley and calls for a much more inclusive and diverse approach to tech. You've also said that technology has a diversity problem and it will impact the ability to get to a better future. What is the most important challenge that you see with this lack of diversity and why do you think it's so important to address diversity to get to the future that you're trying to steer us towards? If we don't have diversity in these tech rooms, we run the risk of perpetuating historical power imbalances and coding them into the future, whether that's power imbalances in gender, in race. If we don't have people in the room that can spot these biases or to even you know, look for them in the first place, we're going to be in big trouble. It's a problem for tech specifically because we're literally coding the future as we speak. But every organization, if they're not already, is going to be a tech company in some shape or form. Even if you're a fashion company, you probably have an app. You'll probably start using algorithms for hiring. This is actually going to be on all organizations to start thinking about diversity very critically because we'll put people at risk if we don't solve this problem. For recruiters or for organizations, sometimes they lean on the pipeline and they like to say, you know, well, there just isn't adequate talent in the pipeline. And sure, but that's often, you know, it's a crutch. Are you still recruiting from the same places? Have you expanded your hiring pool? And that's just one element of it. An even bigger problem is inclusivity. So diversity is in the numbers. Inclusivity is in the culture. 
how do you make people feel at your organization? Do they want to stay? Do they feel included regardless of their race, gender, orientation? There's a lot that's on the organization. And if the pipeline is your crutch, then invest in it. It's in all of our best interests to make the future inclusive and representative, especially in a place like Canada. It's an incredibly diverse country. If your organization isn't reflective of that, you're going to miss out economically, and you'll probably get called out for it at some point or another. If I could give advice to organizations, it would be to expand your recruitment pool, invest in the pipeline, share diversity stats internally and externally for accountability, and address your internal culture. I'm sure there's people that are listening to this and thinking, this future doesn't really sound that great. It sounds like my boss will be a robot. It sounds like I'll have to learn throughout my life. There's a common perception that learning at a later age is harder, is more difficult. It's not always true in the research, but it is the common perception. The situation also sounds really precarious as it relates to job stability, but you don't see this future as dystopian. Why? There are many reasons that technology has the potential to change the way we live for the better. Change is always something that's feared. The same was going from the horse and carriage to the car. When it comes to this revolution with artificial intelligence and the fourth industrial revolution, we're going to be able to solve problems that we didn't even know existed. And I'll give you one example of that. Artificial intelligence was given past data of pharmaceutical companies, all of their research. And it started to find patterns that the human eye just and the human brain just isn't possible to see and figured out drugs that we could use that we hadn't thought of. So there's many things that technology can do that humans just aren't capable of. And one thing that I say, and that people kind of ask me to repeat it twice, is technology will allow us to be more human. The smarter technology gets, the less we have to do. And the more time we have to do things that we enjoy, like be with family. And I'll give you an example with driverless cars. If you're in a car that you don't have to drive, you can then spend that time with your children, working on homework with them. The vehicle doesn't just become this tool, it now becomes a place that you can enjoy. The smarter technology gets, the more time we'll have to be human. In the medical world, for example, our diagnoses will get personalized, treatment plans will be customized. There's a lot of potential to build a better world for so many people, but it does depend on how we do it and who leads it. One thing that I always preach is putting human-centered values at the front line of all of it. Whatever digital technology you're bringing to market, whatever innovation a company has in the pipeline, ask yourself, how will this improve the lives of Canadians? Who does this harm? How do we minimize the risk? And who should be included in this decision before we go to market? What we're learning now is that businesses are becoming our first line of defense in this new digital horizon. If there's a hacking incident, you don't really call the government, you call the company whose product or who owns the device or who owns that service network. Canada can invest in building stronger private-public partnerships, relationships, so the public interest is always represented in this new digital horizon. Investing in your people and in their skills, it's not just tech skills so you can be employed, but understanding how algorithms work for matters of fairness, if they're deciding who gets a loan, who gets parole, all Canadians have some baseline understanding of how that process works. 
It allows checks and balances and accountability, incentivizing Canadians to want to learn. For example, in Singapore, the government pays citizens to take upgrading and upskilling courses. And that's a great way to earn a few extra bucks and to learn skills that are going to keep you employed, adapting your policies to accommodate the new world of work. A lot more of us are going to be stepping into the gig economy. Do your current unemployment, maternity leave, do those policies reflect the future of the workforce? Right now, they don't. So we have an opportunity to make some adjustments. Canada in particular, we can get a little bit more aggressive in building Canadian-based technology. If we know the future is quite tech-dominant and it's going to underscore every single industry, we need Canada to be leading in those lanes as well because you don't just want Canadians that can use technology. We want Canadians to create it. We want to be in control. And then investing, of course, in data policies, especially if it's not a Canadian company, where is that data going and what are you allowing people to do with it? All of those things Canadian leadership can do to help us steer in the right direction with these kind of advanced technologies. What recommendations would you give to governments to help us be prepared for this future? There are a variety of opportunities that Canada can seize. The first is investing in a strong tech landscape in Canada. In order for Canada to secure a strong foothold in the future of work, we need to teach Canadians not just how to use technology, but how to create it. We want to be competitive financially in the world economy. We need to invest in creating technology that is uniquely Canadians, that is uniquely Canada's. Investing in a strong startup economy. Canada has started to do that. Different immigration policies globally make Canada quite favorable. We're becoming a new Silicon Valley, according to some media articles, and I think that that's great. The more we can invest and secure and protect our startup economy, the better for all Canadians. And then investing in safeguarding technology, specifically our data. Of course, you know, cyber hacks and all of that, the future of warfare, all of that we know is going to be digital. Data, it's something that's on all of our minds. A lot of the social networks and things that we use aren't Canadian. Maybe that they're with a trusted allied partner, but what specifically do you request and require of those partners to keep Canadians safe? And don't be afraid to be a little bit bold in asking for safety measures and really safeguarding the data for future generations. I think that that's key. And then ensuring Canadians are financially protected. EI and maternity leave and a lot of our government support programs don't cover gig workers or independent workers. And we know that we're headed there in terms of the structure of the workforce ecosystem, investing in those social safety nets. People are going to be stepping out of the workforce quite frequently to upskill and reskill. A, are you financially incentivizing that? Are you encouraging companies to want to invest in that? And B, do Canadians feel secure that if they don't have an income coming in for a little bit, that's okay, because as they upskill and reskill, Canada wants you to do that, and they are financially supporting that. What recommendations do you have for individuals who want to get prepared for this kind of future? The first is, I would say, manage your expectations and your understanding of what's about to happen and how things are about to change. In your particular career path, how do you think technology could come in and automate or augment what you do? Break down what you do into tasks. And if anything is analytical, involving data or repetitive, all of those are opportunities for technology to step in. 
And we know 100% of jobs will be impacted by technology, every single one. I would first try to break down what it is that you do or your aspirations in your career and understand where technology could be coming in to disrupt that. Once you have an idea, okay, this is how my career path may or may not change, you want to start extracting your specific skills that technology couldn't replicate or automate. Maybe you're a really good creative thinker. AI will probably come in and automate all of the things that you analyze, but the recommendations you select, you're incredibly skilled at that. Or knowing where to apply artificial intelligence, you're incredibly skilled at that critical thinking. And then starting to prepare your resume and your ideas for the future, almost as if you're going to be your own employer. We know that the gig economy, companies can stay a bit more nimble. They're going to opt for a more flexible workforce so they can change and they can pivot. So they'll hire more gig workers and independent workers. And that's for all types of jobs. Lawyers, doctors, a lot of us are going to be stepping into this gig economy. Building a strong resume of what your little entity can do and highlighting skills like adaptability, which we all had to acquire over this pandemic. So even if it's something that you didn't think you were skilled in before, you've certainly got that now. Virtual collaboration was one of the most needed skills for the future of work, and a lot of us have acquired that now. Those are all really important skills that I think we overlook, we just don't think about. Those are all key skills for the future. At Way, we offer a future of work masterclass, so you can understand in a few hours what's about to happen, how technology works, and then you can kind of backstep into what that means for your particular job. A basic sense of digital literacy, where technology could be applied, is critical, but even if you're not tech savvy, that's okay. What are your human skills and any gaps that you see? You have time to figure that out. You're obviously optimistic about the future. What is it about Canada and Canadians that makes you optimistic that we'll be able to seize the opportunities that you see? If we lead with Canadian values and Canadian intentions and what we prioritize, we have a strong infrastructure for inclusivity. Our healthcare, our education systems, we have stable political infrastructures. Those are all strong foundations for a future where it's going to be incredibly dynamic and a lot of change. If we're very intentional about incorporating all of that into our future with technology, Canada will be well positioned to succeed in the future of work. And an example of this in more of a micro scale, in the pandemic, we realized quite quickly that gig workers weren't protected. And we adapted immediately to change that. Not every country did that. That shows Canada's willingness to change if Canadians are left out, if Canadians are vulnerable. That to me is a very compelling example that we have the capacity and the willingness and we always to our best intention, put Canadians first. That makes me very optimistic about the future in Canada. If we can invest in more Canadian homegrown technologies, invest in data regulation, we'll be quite set to be successful for this digital future. Sinead, thank you so much for sharing your view of what the future is that we're coming at and how we might try to shape it. Anytime, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. 
The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.